All right, folks, we are back. Meditations and Molotovs. I am your host, Vincent Emanuele. You are listening to the Progressive Radio Network, where you can find us every Monday at 1 p.m. That's 1 p.m. Chicago time. Well, we have a wonderful show, as always, in store for you today. We're going to be joined shortly. A friend, someone I've known for many years, actually, now, Josh McClain. Uh, before that, I want to congratulate the folks who organized the Rally to Defend Families and Democracy Against Fear and Hate. That was the event that took place on Friday in... Very good to see. And then... Uh, what do we have today? There was an event. I couldn't go to this either. Well, I had these great filmmakers, Ginny and Peter. I want to say thank you to them. They're by the house uh, throughout Saturday, which is why I couldn't go to the event. And they had all the brought their film equipment and they wanted to do a couple of short pieces about refugees. And Peter had asked me if I would then also do a 60 minute piece. Um, just on myself and some of my work in the past and ideas about moving forward with activism under Trump and so on and a bunch, basically a bunch of questions about politics and activism and so forth. And so that turned into like a eight-hour filming fest. We still have six hours to go. Um, so you know how that goes. You film and hours and hours and hours just to pick out little two, three-minute golden nuggets um that process is very tedious and it's good because our good friend sergio corgan is back from the ukraine shooting his documentary he will be in the region um coming up here can't give away any specific information but we've got some we'll have some cool stuff cooking in the mix and you know we need to get some material out there there's not outside of the uh local newspapers and so on. There's like the only people covering these events, but there needs to be an alternative outlet that regularly covers these events in the region, in my thinking. Anyway, there was an event today, Rally to Stop Pruitt Confirmation for EPA Administrator. That was at Federal Plaza, downtown Chicago at noon. What else is going on? This Saturday at 8 a.m., February 11th, Stand with pa Planned Parenthood. That's Saturday at 8 a.m. That's at 8648 Connecticut Street in Merrillville, Indiana. I think this is a counter-protest because there will be conservative groups out there harassing people going into the Planned Parenthood. Also on that day, February 11th, the Gary Poetry Writing Workshop. Check that out. Uh, I think my man Samuel Love is running that, or at least is a part of it. Nonetheless, that's Saturday at 10 a.m. till noon at IUN Anderson Library. That's in Gary, Indiana. Then on February 16th, that's Thursday of next week from 7 p.m. Well, never mind. I'll, I'll announce that as things come up. But I just, well, put it on your calendar anyway. February 16th, Michigan City. Shadi Martini will be talking about the Syrian refugee crisis the event will be hosted by the Concerned Citizens for Syrian Refugees, and they will be uh, letting people know how they can help, specifically how they can help that situation. All right. Now, without further ado, let me give a quick 
little uh, intro for Josh. Joshua McLean from Oakland, California, is a progressive cellist who loops and layers his sound live on stage while classically trained. He mixes Jimi Hendrix-style rock ballads with blues, jazz, folk, and electronic music to produce all original compositions and soundscapes using only the cello. This year, Josh is producing his second studio album, a concept album that follows a hero's journey all the way down to the depths of the shadows where the listener is asked to take a look at themselves deeply and face what's inside. I have linked Josh's Indiegogo campaign to my Facebook page. We'll put that out there on our email list as well. But for now, here's Josh McLean. Josh, are you there? Hey, Vince, can you hear me? Yes, absolutely. Good to have you. Good to, good to be on the show again. I think the last time was sometime in like 2011. Yeah, God, well, time flies six years now. It does. How are you doing? Excellent, excellent. Um, well, you know, let's, let's get started. We're, we're going to crack into, you know, we're talking about taking a look within ourselves. And I think today, uh, you know, part of my uh, task, I guess, is to, is to open you up to the audience. So why don't you tell sure. us a little bit about your background? You know, when, when did you, where did you grow up? Where do you come from? Yeah, I grew up. Um, I grew up in Indiana uh, originally. Uh, my family lived in Maryland, and when I was younger, uh, we moved to the Northwest Indiana um, area, just outside of Chicago. And so I grew up on a small farm uh, in Jackson Township, and that's where I started playing the cello and, and learning a little bit about music. Uh, as a kid, I was mostly interested in like soccer and girls. Um, so the cello was kind of a second thought, but slowly, um, with the help of some mentorship from a couple of mentors of mine, I, um, ended up kind of following the cello as, as my path. And so, uh, that's kind of what I'm here to talk about today is this, this upcoming album, but not just like about the album and that I'm raising funds for, but the sort of concept behind it and where it came from. Um, I'm not sure what else you want to know. Uh, I'm no, not on the radio. Wait, wait, because I'm, I'm gonna. <laughs> I'm not on the radio. We're gonna get to. We're gonna get to all that. We've got you for a little while. So, t- tell me about yeah. starting to play music. Did was this a family thing? Did did, did your parents play music? Uh, no, no. Um, I you actually probably know these guys. I I started playing the cello because my friends Casey uh, Lewandowski, Ray Rodriguez, and Dave Novotny. Um, all were playing the cello or I think Dave might have been playing bass. So I was like, why I got to play the cello because my friends are playing cello. So there was no like real serious interest in, in like that specific instrument. Um, and they kind of all dropped off. Casey became a a really excellent guitar player. Um, but I kept playing cello and the orchestra director at the time, he's actually retiring this year. Um, Tom Schnabel, uh, he was a cellist. He, he studied some cello, uh, in college, but his main focus was music, music education. And he hadn't, uh, he hadn't taught any cello lessons for a while, but he happened to go to my family's church and he lived just down the road. So um, he saw that I was taking to the cello pretty well and he offered to teach me some lessons. And so for a couple of years, I'd go over to his house down the street and um, learn the basics of some of the like main major etudes. Etude is like a, a piece of music that you study. It's like doing your push-ups and sit-ups if you're like a, a, a sports person. Etudes are like how you train your fingers. And so I trained uh-huh. with Tom for, Tom for a while. And then at one point he said, I can't teach you anymore. I, I taught you all I know. So he sent me to um, this master cello player. Her name was Patricia White, and she was the cello professor at Valparaiso University at the time. She had her bachelor's and master's 
um, from Juilliard and cello performance. So I studied with her for four years. Um, and what were you, you know, doing now, before that? Like in high in high school and so on. You you said you were, of course, I think like a lot of people, you know, chasing girls, playing sports, whatever. But also, you were taking these lessons. Did you know at the time that that was it was a passion, or it could become a passion, or is it just kind of something that you were doing that was fun? Um, no, it, it was absolutely a passion for me. It had become a passion for me specifically because um, I think, and I think this is an issue in the in the US specifically like kids don't always have the best tools to express themselves emotionally you don't really have like a lot of coaching in expressing themselves emotionally right. um, i think that's just a, a, a thing <laughs> you know growing up as a as a young sure. person so playing the cello was a way for me to express myself emotionally you know i i could play and cry and sort of express those feelings usually with anger as a <laughs> as a young boy and so I would just you know go into my room and saw away on my cello and so that's kind of how I became closely connected to the instrument because it became so closely tied to how I emotionally express myself and do you think that that's something that you share with other like when, as you've gone along now of course you've met plenty of people who have had very intimate relationships I'm sure with their work and with their instruments and do you, do you find this to be a common theme? Because it's definitely a theme for me. I mean, this is a catharsis, a lot of what I do. Yeah. I mean, I think you find that with a lot of people that are really into their work, whether it's music or arts or education. Um, you can kind of, it's this, you know, it's this continual rabbit hole where you continually learn more about yourself the deeper you get into your work. And you feel like now I, you know, now I'm really at the next level. But then once you get there, it's like climbing a mountain and you get to the peak and then you see that there's another peak and you get to that peak and you never quite get to the top. And that's, I think that's really common with people that are really into their work. You can continually learn more and more about yourself. Well, and you better fall in love with the process at that point. It's not so much yeah. about this, in, in my thinking at least, it's not so much goal orientated. It's that you'd better love and hate. I mean, it's, so it's not only just having fun and loving it. I mean, I've talked about this with other friends in the past. It's sort of that, that tension also, I think, uh, provides the the room for growth. It's not just oh, I enjoy this, and you know, people oh, expect no. you oh, I, you enjoy your art, you must just be happy all the time with your art. No, sometimes you hate it. I mean, at least in my experience. Oh yeah, I mean, art is it can be painful, and if it weren't painful, it wouldn't be worth doing. All right. Um, but yeah, there are definitely times where I, you know, will go away from my art either because I'm personally not inspired or. Um, as creative as an artist, we also get interested in other things. Maybe, you know, for a few months, my interest is in another topic that I like to, to work on, either like woodworking or uh, martial arts. Um, I'll, I will veer from topic to topic as I get either bored or feel like I've met like a plateau. But yeah, I definitely like have, I mean, art is, is, is and can be painful. When I have like a terrible fear of like pigeonholing myself for like, and I don't know if this is an ego thing. I don't know what it is, but I, there's this thing that I'll do where I'll, you know, I'll be very productive in, in say one sphere of life. And then I'll say like a year and a half ago, I decided to stop smoking cigarettes. So I said, okay, smoking cigarettes was associated with writing all of the time. So how can I replace that? And then I went and I started going to jujitsu class three, four days a week for like almost a year straight. And it was like, a way for me to detach from what had become 
um, very normalized behavior. It was somewhat destructive, but also productive. Of course, I'm producing pieces that I love and I'm writing them. And some, of course, I'm not putting out to the public and all of this. But I had associated some kind of negativity, some kind of like this addiction with it as well. So it was very interesting to try and shake that up, I think, with things outside of, you know, uh, your art. So, for instance, you you also are into martial arts. So when did you get into that? Uh, I didn't get into it until college. Um, I went to Indiana University, which I think they still do. I'm not sure if they still have the program, but it was the, one of the largest martial arts programs in the country. Um, they offered, I think, 15 or 20 different arts. And so I, I, I started in Brazilian jiu-jitsu, but uh, <laughs> I was like a long-distance runner and a soccer, soccer player in, college, in uh, high school. And so when I got to college and I, I was taking Brazilian jiu-jitsu, I was like up against all these like, state wrestling champs and just getting just killed. <laughs> I mean, I was not, I was not a grappler at the time. And these were all like wrestling guys who are now taking jujitsu. So um, I didn't love it at first. Cause I remember getting my, you know, my arms hyperextended and choked unconscious and all this terrible stuff. I'm like, God, you know, this is not a lot of fun. Um, so <laughs> it, it wasn't at first. Uh, so I, I stopped doing that for a while, uh, let my body heal. And then I, I got into a Jeet Kune Do class, which is kind of interesting because and you'll get into this as you get more into martial arts. Like martial arts is a lot about improvisation and using different styles when the time calls for it, not really getting pigeonholed into a specific style. And that was cool for me because that's a lot like music. And so like I was playing, I was trained classically, um, but I like to play rock and blues and folk music and improvise. So you take little pieces from this style and that style and you weave it in as you're improvising. And so Jeet Kune Do was really cool for me because I could start thinking about martial arts differently. Um, and then I took a couple of Taekwondo classes and Hapkido classes at Indian University. Um, and then I went to study under a, a great teacher. Her name is uh, Master Debbie Grimaldi, and she teaches in Chesterton, Indiana at a small little studio. And what was cool about her, she she trained in like the old style, like the, the hard style where, you know, you show up and train. It doesn't matter if your arm's broken. You, you do the push-ups, you get yelled at. It's about strict discipline. And I, I really kind of enjoyed that because um, it was about developing a mindset and developing your martial arts, not only as a self-defense system, but as a way of like looking at the world um, and as a way of life. And so I, I did that for quite a while. Um, and then I ended up, I'm kind of getting off on a tangent here, Vince. No, 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 no. We've got time. Go ahead. And so after training at IU for a little bit and then training with Master Grimaldi, um, I was, I had turned into like a lower intermediate high-level beginner martial artist. So I was like, yeah, you know, I'm starting to feel like I've got, you know, my stance, my style. Um, and my first real adventure out of college was I, I went to Nigeria. <laughs> I'd never been out. I'd never been out of the country. I'd never been to Canada or Mexico. Uh, and a, a random teaching gig came up. So I, I got my passport and I was in Nigeria like 15 days after I got this invitation. And so um, we had to teach an extracurricular class there. So I was teaching a martial arts class. I taught like basic self-defense to, to the kids as part of their physical education curriculum. And so I was doing that. Um, but while I was there, some pretty scary stuff happened um, because Nigeria is a pretty destabilized, very dangerous country. Um, and so at one, at one point, our, our compound was invaded by armed robbers, and they kidnapped one of my friends, uh, and like this gun battle ensued. 
Um, and so after that experience, in addition to a couple of others, um, I started training martial arts pretty seriously. So instead of being into like really fancy stuff or look at this exciting like roundhouse spinning kick, I was more into like what works um, when someone's going to come <laughs> and try to right. kill you. Right. Um, because that's, that's not something that, that necessarily everyone teaches, especially in traditional martial arts studios. Um, so there's something I, I, there's a phrase that I came up with, I call it fighting prowess. So you can, you can learn a bunch of stuff. You can learn all this, these techniques and be really good in a traditional sense, but take that guy and put him up against a dude who's just really good at fighting and the martial arts will probably lose. Cause there's something to, to be said about understanding how violence works and how it's not pretty and it's explosive and it happens really fast and there's a type of brutality to it that you really have to understand on a fundamental level um, to become an effective martial artist. So that, that all stemmed from going to Nigeria and having that experience and that is how I've trained um, ever since then. And then uh, right after that I went to Japan and studied uh, Shorin Jukempo um, with, with fighting monks for a year which was, which was really fun. I was teaching there. Oh, that's amazing. That's amazing. How'd yeah. you end up there? Um, I had applied to teach in Japan because I had studied some Japanese um, in high school and college. And so my teacher in high school had spent three years in Japan through a program called the JET program. And I always said, you know, I really want to go to Japan through the JET program when I'm older. Um, so I had applied before I, before I went to Nigeria. And actually, I got a notification that I was accepted while I was in Nigeria. And so... I said yes, and so I came back to the States for five weeks, and then I flew to Japan to live there and teach for a year. And when I got there, I said, hey, you know, I mean, I'm in Japan. I'd like to study some traditional Japanese martial arts. And so the people just sent me to the, to the sensei to, like, go study with this guy. Um, and it, I'd never heard of Shorinji Kempo. It's actually a pretty um, – I, I would say it's a pretty rare eclectic martial art. Probably only 700,000 people or a million people in the world study it. And um, – it is a combination of Shaolin Kung Fu built on a, no, sorry. It's karate, Aikido, and Jiu-Jitsu built on top of a Shaolin Kung Fu like framework. It's very strange. Uh, the founder lived in China before, during, and after World War II, and he was part of Japanese intelligence, and he was um, basically learning their martial arts systems to report back to the Japanese. And eventually he became a master of a school of Shaolin boxing there. Um, but he also began studying Buddhism there as well. And so when he came back um, to Japan, he saw the country was in total. I mean, the United States bombed almost every single major city of Japan. The country was in shambles after the war. And so he saw people in great suffering. And so what he decided to do is teach people, well, specifically at the time, to teach young men Kung Fu um, that he get them into his school and then also teach them Buddhism. And so the school of thought for this specific martial art is that you become a pillar of strength yourself so that you can then in turn help your community. And he used his school to help rebuild like an entire area of Japan in, in rural Japan. And so it's, it's both a martial art and a Zen Buddhist religion. And so I did that for a year and I was, that's when I really thought like, man, like the, the power of, of martial arts to sort of propagate nonviolence and community um, involvement is really powerful. And um, that really got me into, into martial arts uh, as a way of life and a study. Now, when we return, I want to play one of the tracks that you sent me.
when we return, I want to get back in. I want to sort of delve back into this theme of discipline because it runs not only throughout, I think, martial arts and, and, and that work, but I think also it runs through spiritual work and creative work. And yeah, practicing as you have for so long, I would like to get back into that. But were you were you going to say something? No, I was just going to say I go off on these tangents, Vince, and you got to reel me back in. So. <laughs> no, well, that's my job. It's your job to go on tangents. That's exactly what I want. Um, what? So, so you've sent me three tracks. The producer Jesse has all of them queued up. We're going to just play one, and then we'll go back to talking. We'll play another one. Um, the first one I believe is called is that A minor. Yeah, so I'm still, they're also working titles. Um, so th- this one is in the key of A minor, and these are taken from um, some video work I did recently. Uh, so it's just the audio track ripped from the video. Um, it's a live performance, and I, I think you'll like it. Excellent, excellent. So here is A minor by Josh McLean.
that was Josh McLean and his yeah, working I... title for his track, A Minor. Thank you, Josh. That was amazing. So I think I sent look, you I think I sent you the wrong file actually. <laughs> that was like oh, the did raw. You? <laughs> yeah. I had a I had two folders. One was the raw footage from the um from the filming. <laughs> and anyway, so you heard a bunch of the, the chatter before I actually played. I sent you a couple of files in your email, Vince. I don't know if you can play those next that's ones kinda, instead. That's kinda cool though. I kinda I kinda dig the uh I kinda dig it. Um it kinda gives you an insight too to how like the behind the scenes process of how those things work. And that's kind of, it's, it's funny that you sent me the wrong one because it segues perfectly into the next section of questions that I have for you really. And that's a lot about the creative process and sure. thinking about, so I'm thinking about discipline. I'm also thinking about you having the, the these sounds I'm assuming and I've, I've heard other musicians sort of say they hear these sounds like they just come naturally that they're like in their head and is that how it works for you? Do you hear these sounds or are these sounds that like maybe you'll hear something from someone else and you'll be like, man, I like that. I want to, I want to, uh, maybe alter it or what, how, what does this initial creative process look like in terms of the inception of these, these tracks? Yeah, it's not, it doesn't come quite as naturally to me as you might think. Um, I'm kind of a, my piano teacher back in the day called me a kinetic learner, which means I need to like move to kind of learn and, and figure stuff out. So for me, yeah, I, I listen to a lot of music, but the, the sounds come to me like while I'm playing. So like I spend a lot of time improvising, just exploring the instrument, going through different scales. Um, and <laughs> this doesn't sound very scientific, but a lot of times I just happen across the melodies that I'm looking for or the chord progressions that I'm going for. And so I kind of go fishing. I take out my cello, I, I hook up all of my pedals and, and cables and speakers, and then I start playing. And um, eventually the, the song comes out and it usually just comes through kind of an improvisation. Now, in terms of the tones that I use and the sounds that I go for, there are, there are definitely musicians that I look to, to not necessarily emulate, but um, I'm inspired by their sounds. Who are some of those folks right now? Um, my favorite musician in the world uh, is Andrew Bird. I don't know if you guys are familiar with him. He's a he, he plays everything. He's a uh, well, uh, he's a violinist, but that doesn't necessarily describe the awesome music he makes. He's a he's a progressive mu musician as well. He makes pop music. He plays guitar. He writes really nice songs. Um, but when I was living in Japan, a, a friend of mine had introduced me to his music, and I was listening to it. I'm like, oh, man, that band is really great. He's like, no, dude, he makes all of those sounds by himself on stage, like, at the same time. He uses a looping pedal. I'm like, oh, my God, I have to do that. So when I got back from got back to the States, um, that's when I first started looping and trying to emulate kind of that, that sound that he gets with his, with his violin. Um, and I'm assuming people, you also don't just play the cello. You're, you, you play multiple instruments, right? Yeah, I play a little guitar as well. Um, guitar, I can bang around on the keys. Uh, and I like to sing occasionally. Uh, my last album had, some, had a little bit more of that element where I was actually doing songwriting. I was writing you know, A, B parts with a bridge and a chorus, and I was singing a lot and writing songs because um, that's kind of what I was into at the time, uh, which is going to be different from this upcoming album, which is just going to be, I mean intense rock and roll cello ballad compositions. And so, yeah, I would play some other instruments. You might see a few of them in this, on this upcoming album, and I might bring in a couple other musicians, but for the most part, it'll be entirely cello. 
so take us to this new album. What was the inspiration for this album? Because you've been calling it a concept album. And I know I linked, for those who are listening on my Facebook page, to the Indiegogo campaign. Uh, and I really like the description in there. I don't want to waste any time with you. Uh, but it is uh, really nicely written, and you should check it out. Um, but what what was the inspiration for this album? Yeah, well, the, <laughs> the inspiration was that I needed a new album. Uh <laughs> I produced one. In, I produced one in 2011, and I and I'd written a bunch of music since then, and so I was playing out a lot, um, both in the in Indiana and then in the last four four and a half years in California. And people were saying, "Hey, where's where's your album?" Um, and I'm like, "Well, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm I'm writing some new music. It'll be out soon. It'll be out soon." Uh, and so that's <laughs> that's the inspiration behind this album. But why I'm calling it a concept album is that. Uh, for a long time, again, I, my previous album, I was trying to write songs, and that wasn't necessarily working for me because of the way that I play and the way that I conceive music. Um, I'm more of a storyteller, a long-winded storyteller with the cello. And um, so if my songs are a story, I kind of wanted the entire album to be one story. So what I'm trying to do and what I'm going to do with this album is sort of take the listener on one long sonic journey from the beginning of the album all the way to the end of the album. I'll master the track so that there's no time in between so that you can just listen to it straight through. And the reason I'm sort of focusing on this journey inward is because I kind of had, I don't know, I don't want, I don't want to call it a nervous breakdown, um, <laughs> but I quit my job and uh, basically- And when was, when was this, Josh? Yeah, so I had been working, um, actually I've been working for Indiegogo, a, great company. One of the best things that's happened to me was working for Indiegogo, the crowdfunding platform. Um, I moved out to California. I got a job in tech and that's what it was. I was working as a campaign strategist for Indiegogo from 2013 um, to 2016. So I quit my job in May of 2016, um, basically to pursue music full-time only because it had gotten to the point where, I mean, when you're working in tech, you're working, I don't know, like sometimes 10, 12 hours a day. I didn't have a lot of time to spend on my music. And while I enjoyed my job, it was getting apparent that I couldn't really ignore my music any longer. And so the longer I ignored it, the more sort of depressed I became. And it got to the point where I just, I just couldn't physically work anymore. Um, Cause I really needed to be, I needed to be spending all of my time um, putting my energy into my music. And so I, I've been planning for this for a while. So I've been saving money. Um, I picked up, a side skill. I'd, I'd learned how to do DSLR videography. So I was getting a few gigs here and there doing that. Um, and so I, I quit my job and I, I bought, <laughs> I bought a plane ticket down to the Peruvian Amazon uh, where I worked with shamans and healers uh, in the jungle for six weeks. Um, kind of as a way to just sort of figure out like, what do I, you know, what do I want to do? Um, how do I kind of heal this sort of spiritual um, unwellness I had picked up from working so hard in an industry that necessarily wasn't necessarily the best for me creatively. And, um, you know, what can I do with my life moving forward? And so that's kind of the path that I took. Um, I don't know if you want to <laughs> ask any questions about that. Uh, well, so psychedelics have been a constant theme uh, well, not only in my life and not only uh, 
on this program, but we've we've spoken with a lot of different people who've had different experiences, similar experiences, uh, spiritual experiences, some of them with substances, some of them without, but nonetheless, very, very similar. And it's something that I think almost anyone who's listening to the program at this point understands that has had a profound impact on my own life coming back from uh, being in the uh, war and being in the military and so forth. Right. So tell, tell me, how have you, how have those experiences, not only say what you were experiencing at the time, but now reflecting back on them at this point and having time to, to sort of maybe look at them in a different light. How do you, how do you look at those experiences today? And, and is this something that you think, um, well, I'll just leave it at that. Uh, which experiences in the, in Peru or just psychedelic experiences in general? And I would say in Peru, in Peru, but also overall, what, what has been your, your experiences with that? I mean, hmm. in the way you look I at had, it now, because there's still people yeah. who it's interesting. It's almost like marijuana. I mean, whereas people knew for decades that they had, you know, and for thousands of years, of course, people have known that this has played a, a, a large role in, in, and I know you're not only uh, interested this in this in, in the specific way we're talking about it, but I'm also thinking about sort of the power of mythology and the, the yeah. role that it, the, this sort of ritualistic role that this has played for thousands and thousands of years. Yeah, that, that's actually a good point. And so in terms of psychedelics, um, this last summer was the first time that I had experienced it in like a very spiritual ceremonial setting. And I think that I, I really think that that gave it a whole different meaning in terms of like how you process it, how you bring it into your life versus like, you know, when you're in college and you're just experimenting with different drugs, you don't really have any, any kind of guide or anything like that. Um, right. I, I wouldn't necessarily say that those were always positive experiences for me spiritually, um, only because I didn't really know why I was doing it. I didn't have the tools to process the experience. And so Peru was, I mean, it was really a painfully, I can't express how painful of an experience it was. Um, I was working with, with ayahuasca, um, which is a, an indigenous medicine. Um, when I was there, it was being administered by Shipibo people who live in a region of Peru called Pucallpa. And they've been working with that specific medicine for thousands and, and thousands of years. Um, and so I'm not sure if, that, if this medicine does this for everyone, but for me, I was forced to look at everything inside of myself that I don't want to look at and all the things that I'm not proud of that I've done and all the things that I've, you know, what, what's the scariest thing you can imagine that you don't really want to deal with? And that's, that's what you had, that's what you had to face. And looking back on it now, none of those lessons really even began to process until, um, seven or eight months later, literally like January 1st is when I was like finally beginning to process all these sort of lessons that I had been taught by, the, by this plant uh, in Peru. Um, and what are those lessons? The lessons are, uh, I mean, one is to do, to do the things that are, that are the best for you. And so for me, that's exercising, doing my music, um, being good to people, trying not to spread negativity, um, yeah, those are some of the lessons that I, that I I had learned. Where does this take you in terms of the hero's journey? 
I find this an interesting part of your description as well. Yeah. Because it reminds me of some of the, some of the, uh, Joseph Campbell that I used to read back in the day. I haven't read him in a while, but go ahead. Yeah. So I I was introduced to Joseph Campbell over the summer while I was in Peru. Uh, The place I was spending time at was, um, you know, you were working with ayahuasca in ceremony, but you were also working with like cognitive behavioral therapists to talk about your thinking processes, negative thinking processes, how to sort of get out of those cycles. Um, you know, we were doing meditation every day, um, yoga every day, but we were also taking classes on mythology. And so they spoke a lot about Joseph Campbell and how in the hero's journey, I'm sure a lot of people are actually familiar with it, whether or not they know that the, the word for it, but it's like, you know, Luke Skywalker in Star Wars, right? He's, he's sort of called on this adventure um, he's just an ordinary guy. He refuses the adventure. Um, finally, he's brought to this final showdown where he has to face his greatest fear. Um, there's sort of like a death, like when he gets his hand chopped off. There's a spiritual death. Um, you're sort of reborn as a stronger person in a way that you can affect the rest of the world. So we were, we were studying these myths while we were in the jungle, and most of us were actually having them. Um, in our ceremonies where you're facing your greatest fear, um, I did experience spiritual death where I experienced death on a very intense level. Um, and the month since then has been sort of this slow process of being reborn into who you want to be. And that's kind of when I really started working hard on this album and thinking about it in a different way that I, I hope to do that same thing with my own sound. Um, because I know that when you listen to music, um, you can have emotive responses, right? You can cry, you can um, get the chills, uh, you can feel happy, it can make you remember different scenes from your life. Um, so music is a very powerful way uh, to go on a journey. And you can do that without the use of psychedelics. And so with this album, I hope to take people on their own hero journey um, by listening to this music, by allowing themselves to to respond to the vibrations and let whatever visions come up, whether that's remembering your childhood or an event that happened to you, um, letting allowing yourself to feel emotion, whether that's sad sadness or, or happiness or anger, um, and I hope to do it in a really epic way with some pretty nasty cello tracks. So <laughs> I'm sure <laughs> you will. Play. I'm sure you will, yeah. and you have. And well, let's. Speaking of which, let's play one more track. We'll come back and speak with Josh. You're listening to Meditations in Molotovs. I am your host, Vince Emanuele. You're listening to the Progressive Radio Network. This we'll call track D. We'll play this one. Hopefully it's the right one. We'll see what happens.
Amazing, amazing stuff by Joshua McLean. You're listening to Meditations and Molotovs on the Progressive Radio Network. Josh, I don't know what I like better, man, talking to you or listening to your music. We need another hour. Um, look, I want to. I want you to. There's a couple things I want to mention, and I know this was something sure. you wanted to mention specifically, and I wanted to give you a chance to respond to this because I wasn't going to make the conversation overtly political because as people know on this program we like to talk about all kinds of things and but nonetheless with what you know many consider to be sort of a dark time right now there's sort of two questions I would have for you one is what you wanted to me to mention which was you know the role of public institutions in providing you sort of the foundation for becoming a creative uh, individual someone who's been able to uh, do what you've done uh, in your life, and then also, you know, how how to use that creativity in these dark times uh, to provide some light for people who might be feeling very depressed and down, and a lot of folks feeling very uh, alienated and lonely, especially people of color, uh, women, uh, transgender folks, and so on. Yeah, I mean, yeah, they, it, could, it does seem, uh, I can't even look at the news. Yeah, things do seem pretty dark right now. Um, and the sort of move to try to just privatize everything and defund for, for me, what I'm really upset about, I was trying to defund public education and, um, also remove funds from the national endowment for the arts. So for example, you and I went to the same high school. It was a great high school. I mean, as many things as you wanted to get involved in, you could, there were like, there was an orchestra, there were like three bands, there was a show choir, speech and debate, track, you know, basketball, football, soccer, running. Like, what, can it, what interest does a kid have? You could do it there. And it was in a public school. This, the, the talents that I have today, like my ability to get up and speak in front of people, um, playing the cello, um, any of these things, like I, I learned that in school at a, at a, at a public institution. And the importance of, of having that level of education available for everybody is such a big deal. I, I just cannot even begin to understand um, the right wing's uh, – I'm sorry. <laughs> I can't even – I'm like so upset I can't even talk about it. Um, no, it's okay. It seems like I from our conversation it's almost a digression, but I, I, I hear what you're saying. I just don't understand where their thinking comes from. Every time they privatize anything, it's just, it just gets totally screwed. Do with healthcare, screw you. Do with pri the prison system got privatized. Those poor bastards. I mean, they. I mean, their their food was terrible. People were dying in prison. They were being abused um, in ways that are worse than you know normal prison abuse. Um, right. If you privatize anything, profit and money becomes becomes the only thing that matters. If you privatize any institution, that's the only thing. Now you have stakeholders who need to see um, their shares. Uh, increase in value. And, and so how can you make things cheaper? How can we take away programs to make this thing um, more viable, specifically only for our stakeholders versus the people that are actually using those, um, those resources like public education? Or the people who so, need it the most, of course. Are the people, yeah, the people that need it the most. And I, I just don't understand. Like, it's the only civilized nation in the world, only industrialized nation in the world 
that that does poorly in almost <laughs> everything. Healthcare and education; those are two incredibly important things. We make one of them, well, we make both of them completely unaffordable. I mean, I'm 32; I'll be 33 this year, and I still have twenty thousand dollars in student debt that I had to take out to go to school at, to a public school. I mean, right. that's insane. Right. So, I mean, I just absolutely get on the get on the phone, call your senators. Call your congressman. Make sure that that people know that you have an interest in in public education, public health care, and things that work that are not privatized. Right on. Well, that's Josh's political message for the program. I also, <laughs> not so. Let's let's get back to, to something that. that <laughs> well, this will be, I think, maybe even just as useful and and, and a little more fun because I want to end the program with yeah. uh, the last track that you sent me, but. I want to ask you also, what what are you listening to these days? In terms of music? Yeah, give us some artists and some or some groups or some projects that uh, you want to turn people on to. I just listened to a really awesome concept album because I've been listening to a lot of them um, by The Antlers. The album is called Hospice. The Antlers Hospice, all right. That's a good one. Check them out. Um, listen to anything by Andrew Bird. Um, Listen to anything by Zoe Keating. Uh, she's another looping cellist, but she does it much better than I do. <laughs> she's, uh, <laughs> she, well, she had a degree in mathematics and music, and she was a programmer, so she uses these like crazy, this crazy software. She programs herself to like create these intense loops while she's playing. It's, it's pretty spectacular. I, I highly recommend that. Right um, on. Right on. What was her name again? I'm sorry. Zoe Keating. Z O E K E A T I N G. Zoe Keating. Um, if you want to get right taken, if you want to get taken, if you want to get taken to other places, her music is is pretty good. Well, I would say the same with your music, my friend. It definitely takes me to other places. It's the kind of music where I put on these noise canceling headphones and just uh, lay down in a nice dark room, or if I'm walking around out by the out by the uh, sand dunes where I live. Um, pretty amazing stuff. Give us some final thoughts. How can people plug in? How can people help? Definitely support the album, support the project, tell people how they can access your material as well. Yeah, there are a couple different ways. You can go to my website, which is joshuamcclain.net. Um, and that's McLean is M-C-C-L-A-I-N, joshuamcclain.net. Um, I've got a campaign live on Indiegogo right now. I'm raising funds for the next album. I'm halfway there after only a week. Um, so you could go to indiegogo.com and just look for Josh McLean. Um, and you can find me on Facebook as well. I'm sure Vince will probably provide some uh, links if y'all are interested in, in getting to any of those places. I will, definitely. And I will provide links in the bio that we will link to the podcast once it is posted. But so, yeah, talk- we're set, man. Thank you for the conversation. You're a very, very fucking interesting cat, and I wish <laughs> you the best of luck in everything that you do. I hope we can actually run into each other face-to-face the next time we see each other. Yeah, if I'm home uh, back in Indiana, I'll, I'll look you up. And if you're, likewise, if you're ever out in Oakland or the San Francisco Bay Area, let me know. Right on. Right it's on, good to see you. We will, well, let's end the program. Josh, thank you. I will talk to you soon, brother. Thank you very much. Thank you Let's very much. Thanks end for the time. program with the last track that he gave us. I think that's E. And then we'll just go straight into the next program. So stick around. Always good programming on the Progressive Radio Network. I want to thank Jesse in the studio for all of his help today. I want to thank or whoever else is in the studio today. I want to also thank 
uh, Joshua McLean, especially for being on the program. What an interesting fellow and what a nice person and a creative person. And these are the kind of folks we want to have in the world. These are the kind of kids we want to raise folks. So pay attention. Um, here's the last track. This is the progressive radio network. This is meditations and Molotovs. I'm your host, Vince Emanuele, and we will be back next week.